Hello, friends. Welcome to the Nugget Climbing Podcast. This is your host, Stephen Dimmitt. We have a very good episode today. My guest today is Paul Hagogi. He goes by Huffy. He goes by the climbing physio. Paul is one of the top physiotherapists in the world when it comes to all things climbing injuries, what causes them, how to rehab them, how to prevent them in the future. So yeah, this guy knows his stuff. And we got into many topics in this conversation. We talked for quite a while about fingers. Specifically, we talked about lumbrical injuries. Those seem to be getting a lot more common. We talked about why that is, how to rehab lumbrical injuries and how to prevent them. We talked about training with hypermobile fingers. We talked about synovitis and capsulitis and causes of those things and how to prevent those. We talked about why stretching your fingers is really important. We talked about wrist strengthening exercises. That's probably my biggest takeaway from this episode is that I need to be strengthening my wrists to support my finger health and my finger strength. We talked about tennis elbow and golfer's elbow, how to decipher different types of elbow pain, and Paul shared his top advice to not get injured. I really enjoy that. That came at the very end, and I thought he left us with a really great nugget. If you have one of the injuries that we talk about in this conversation, or you want to try some of the exercises that Paul recommends, definitely check out the video for this podcast. I always upload the uncut videos on my Patreon, and I highly recommend watching this one rather than listening. Paul demonstrates a lot of the positions and exercises that we're talking about, and it makes a lot more sense when you're seeing him on the screen. So be sure to check that out on Patreon. And if you're not a patron, there's a seven-day free trial, so you can become a patron for free just for this episode. If you want to watch it, you can cancel at any time, no questions asked. All right, I hope you enjoy this one and find it useful. And without further ado, please enjoy Paul Hagogi. All right, Paul, it is great to be here with you. Um, I'm really excited about this. You and I have been sending DMs back and forth since like July talking about doing this. I had Ollie Tor on the podcast and he recommended that I have you on and said some really kind things. And we tried in October and I think your daughter fell off the monkey bars and hurt her elbow. And now here we are in the middle of February finally recording. But um, but yeah, you have such a deep wealth of knowledge. I want to... Um, you know, I want to kind of tease people with what we're going to talk about today and then hear about your background and um, what your career looks like these days. And, your, you know, maybe a little bit about your background in climbing as well, because you're a badass climber. Yeah. Um, I don't know if most people know that, but um, but yeah, you have such a wealth of knowledge. I wasn't sure what direction to take this interview in. And I reached out to my patrons and got so many questions for you that I just decided, or we decided, you know, talking to you about it, that we should just turn this into more or less a listener Q&A. A lot of people have um, injuries and niggles and things that they're confused about. And I think we got a lot of great questions that I think will lead into hopefully kind of more global, helpful takeaways for how to prevent these injuries, how to deal with things like lumbrical injuries or synovitis or capsulitis capsulitis or hypermobile fingers and how you train if you have uh, super mobile fingers and then like injury prevention for fingers and how to promote finger health 
um, for all of us, for aging climbers, et cetera. So um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. But um, as a way to kick things off, tell me a little bit about your background like I said, you, you've been climbing for a long time, I think since you were 16, and you're also now the, um, the GB Olympic physio. You were with Shauna Coxie mm-hmm. in Tokyo, I believe. So, yeah, I'm curious to hear yeah. um, about your climbing and then when, uh, when this physio uh, kind of path came into the picture for you and what it looks like today. Yeah, I mean, I just fell into that group of um, people who didn't like football or rugby, which is all you could do, really in North Wales where I was from. It's just a sleepy little place. Um, I found climbing through my grandfather who would take me up trad routes. And he was a, he was a bit of a badass climber himself. So he, he nearly got the first ascent of Everest. So he was going up to the, the Himalayas. And yeah, the weather crapped down. He didn't get to do it, but you know, he got to see all his slides. So I think Wales were kind of hot on the heels of the first ascent, but wow. didn't get to happen. But he's still going strong. You know, he's in his early nineties now, but he's still really fit. And anyway, he, he dragged me out to the hills and my mum also climbed and it was a bit of a family affair and I just really enjoyed it. It's a bit, a bit different. And the people who did it were quite different as well. And I still to this day, that's one of the main draws for me about climbing. It's just, we're all just a bunch of friendly weirdos and uh, <laughs> I love that. So yeah, it was, it's more and more, it's about people rather than practice, but I did all, always enjoy trying to climb hard stuff. Um, hard for me anyway. Mm-hmm. And did the interest in uh, physiotherapy and the human body helping athletes with injuries, did that come into the picture because you were a climber? Did the interest grow out of your climbing? I'd say so. I'd say I would say it's more that I slept walked my way through university through the um, educational system to the point where I had a degree and I didn't know what to do with it. <laughs> and the degree had musculoskeletal anatomy as one of the main core bits. So I did a lot of dissection and I I knew the body quite well, literally inside out. And um, yeah, it was a toss up between teaching and physio. And physio came up first, thank goodness, and that was where it all sort of came together, I suppose. I was climbing a lot and I was in Sheffield, so I was really happy. I was climbing loads, doing the bare minimum of my degree and um, going out climbing and sometimes messing up my education a little for climbing. Like I remember jumping out of an exam because I knew someone was going to fun and actually failed that exam, <laughs> but I, I really wanted to go to fun. So I had to yeah, reset that exam, but it was worth it. And that was probably gives you an idea of my commitment at the time uh, to my first degree. But my second, I knuckled down and I really kind of dug into physio. And, and it's, yeah, it's just been, it's never felt like hard work, really. Just, it's a great job. And again, you meet motivated people who want to get better, perhaps haven't been given the tools to do that. And that's very satisfying. So, yeah, very easy to stay motivated for this job. And what percentage of your time do you spend working with climbers? That's funny. I was asked this a while ago. I would say about, at the time I said about 30, 40%, but now it's higher. So I'd say about 60% now. And um, I have a feeling if I just decided to treat climbers, it'd be 100%. But I quite like having the mixture. Um, Because you see the same presentations in other people, maybe not fully injuries, um, but you see a lot of the other things in other athletes and everyday weekend warriors and it's just satisfying trying to help them as it is elite climbers to me. So 
yeah, I think I always want to keep a mix and not just be a hardcore climbing physio, mm. you know? <laughs> yeah. That's cool. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. And uh, are you involved in the um, the Paris Olympics as well? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So plan is to go there with Toby and see you else. Toby no QS. We've got that coming up. So it's Budapest and Shanghai. Um, and based on that, yeah, we'll know which team we're taking. But at the moment, it's me and Toby. Okay. And yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Should be good. Because I went to Tokyo and it was with COVID quite a different experience. Still a good one, but I think Paris will be the full experience. Quite curious to see what that might be like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very cool. Yeah. All right. Mm. You ready to dive into some injuries? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, so yeah, we've got, we've got a, uh, mo- most of these questions, well, not most, but a, a bunch of them are finger, um, finger injury questions. So we'll spend quite a lot of time on fingers. Then we'll just kind of see how we're doing on time, but we've got some elbows, uh, questions, knees, neck and back, and then general in- injury prevention. So we'll just see how we do on time. But, um, yeah, so the first the first topic I want to dive into is lumbricol injuries, and I have a question from a listener. But um, I think lumbricols are so interesting. I had you know I talked about this over the summer, I think, in one of the Rocklands episodes because Ben Wheeler was on the show and he had a lumbricol injury, and it was fascinating to me. Ethan was like, was like, what's happening? I've, I, I'd never heard of a lumbricol before, like a year ago, and now all of a sudden everyone seems yeah. to be having lumbricol injuries. So I'm curious if something has changed in our training that's um, that's leading to more of these injuries and, and that's led them to become more common. And if there's something that we can do to avoid them, but, um, it was strange with Ben because, you know, he's like, as long as I full crimp with four fingers, I can still climb V13, but I just have to avoid dragging. And I was like, that's blowing my mind. That's so the opposite of any finger injury I'd come across before, but, um, let's dive in here. So this question's from Ian, any recovery tips for lumbrical injuries, um, I'm pretty sure I ruptured a lumbrical in my ring finger last year and it has yet to fully heal. Three finger dragging is super painful. Okay, front three, presumably. Um, yeah, so just to give a bit of context to lumbricals because they are weird structures. M- most muscles go from a bone to a bone, whereas lumbricals, they go from a tendon, the open hand drag tendon, um, to the bone, which is the PIP joint, and they stabilize your PIP joint. So they're really intimately linked with the drag tendon, which is the foundation of that lumbar core. And does that make sense? Yeah, so it's kind of, it connects like the tip of your finger where you're in a really open position to kind of the base of your palm. Well, yeah, so so basically, one way you could think about it, you see um, windbreaks at a beach, you know the wind breaks, you tap the stakes in and they've got the bit of um, canvas and another stake. Mm-hmm. So the stakes in this scenario are the tendons which bend the end of your finger and the canvas bits are the lumbricals. All right? Okay. So that's true for the back two lumbricals because they basically are what you call bipennate. So they string across from the middle and ring tendon and the um, one of the... Uh, ring to pinky finger, they're both bipennate muscles. So they're literally stretched across connecting to your open hand drag tendon. So when you're open hand dragging and you flex the finger down pinky, it's the equivalent of like my kid pulling on one of those um, pegs and tearing the canvas. Mm. 
Yeah, it's the same thing. So as I flex down like that, the, the tendon drags down and you get shearing force between that muscle that's anchored between the tendons. So that's, that's how they're intimately linked. And that's why when you're isolating that FDP, the drag tendon, and do that, the two units get isolated. And your question about why we're seeing more of them, that's a good one. I do see more of them as well. I do see them tidying up quite fast. Lumbricals are the ones where climbers often get in touch with you in a panic because it feels terrible. And as soon as they say, it hurts when I drop my pinky, I've got a little bit in my palm, maybe in my forearm, I tend to worry far less because these ones have the highest peak of pain and generally flatline and knees up quite fast if you can rehab them right. Um, it's the it's the sort of same tra trauma, but focused around the A2 perhaps or A2, A3. That's when you tend to think well, it's going to be a bit more difficult. But um, yeah, that's the anatomy and that explains why the drag links to the pinky dropping. And it's really important to understand that anatomy. Yeah, yeah. It's going to be really helpful to watch the video on this one if you guys are patrons. <laughs> but yeah, so if you're in a three-finger drag, your index middle ring are mostly straight and your pinky's bent down, that's when you're creating yep. that kind of almost twisting shearing force on the lumbrical, which is kind of in the middle of your palm between your ring and yes. pinky fingers. Yeah. Between, yeah, but specifically between the tendons that you're using when you're drag hanging. Okay. So the tendons themselves are the origin of the lumbrical as opposed to a bone. So the more you isolate the drag position, the open hand position, the more taut the anchor for the lumbrical is. So then when you drop that pinky, that muscle has a pull one way and a pull another way. But, you know, your man there with the question about having had it last year, that's unusual to have had it for that long. And that either speaks to it to being quite a traumatic lumbrical, isolated lumbrical issue, or perhaps what I was saying, the fact that, you know, you've got two units that are isolated when you drag. And if the strain is enough to feel the lumbricals tearing, there's a very good chance that the tendon of your open hand muscle down here has perhaps in torn the from the um, tendon as well. Yeah, in the forearm. Okay. And so there's a very easy test you can do for that. Just like a pull test, you, you choose the finger that's sore, in this case, the ring finger, and you basically isolate the end of that finger, having the rest of the hand straight, or the rest of the finger straight, and just bend your fingers, the other fingers, flex them. If you feel pain in your palm and the forearm, then you've got some work to do on the actual anchor of the lumbricle. If you don't get that right, the lumbricle itself won't heal. I see. So for, for people listening again, basically do like a really gentle mono hang, just using your other hand yep. to load the end of the ring finger or whichever finger is hurt. And if you feel that pain down in your forearm, um, you've got a, a deeper injury to address before the lumbricle in your hand can that's fully right. heal. Is that right? Okay. That's correct. That's correct because when you're in isolating that um, ring finger in the mono at the end, you're essentially assessing the integrity of that anchor point of the lumbricle. And if that's not right, you'll always get the two playing off each other. And that's normally where it becomes recurrent. And the rehab for that, when you're trying to sort these things out, relies a lot on, like you mandated with the V13, staying in crimp and people are really surprised when we've assessed them and I say, right, you need to go to a board, you need to climb in full crimp on big feet. And if that feels okay, then you're going to use smaller feet. 
but and then that's the kind of routine I use. And you just keep all the muscles firing. The more engaged the knuckles are, the I, the higher into crimp you are, the more muscles you've got engaged through the forearm, and the less isolated those really deep open hand muscle tendon units in the forearm are. Wow. So the, the solution is to just spend more time crimping harder. <laughs> Well, yeah, maybe we'll get into that. But um, the, the, to get this right, you actually need to train in that vulnerable position. And um, often you'll see online people talking about tendon stiffness uh, and how you should always be training your tendons to be stiff and not um, elastic. But with drag position injuries, if you don't hold for longer periods of time, you'll get a phenomenon called stress shielding. That's essentially where your body knows there's a vulnerable unit there and it will contract and do its best to avoid isolating that. Mm. So what you'll find with these drag positions are they might do great on even body weight front three hangs. But if you get them to hold a bigger hold for 15, 20 seconds, they'll feel a developing dragging pain coming through that unit. And the reason that develops is because the other tendons are losing stiffness. So they're not able to stress shield the problem. And it's that at that point there that you start getting the benefit, the rehab mm. of the vulnerable unit. Yeah, um, that makes sense. Your body's trying to, yeah, your body's trying to protect the vulnerable injury location with stress shielding. So you have to kind of like yes. wear it out. You have to tire yourself out so that that part gets loaded. Gotcha. Yeah, it's it's essentially you lose you're losing stiffness in the in the healthy units around that injury. And anyone with this injury will know this feeling of a slow ramp up of tension. It can become sharp, in which case you're on the hold, uh, a too small a hold or on it for too long. But you're looking to feel that effect rather than just think performance, short three second holds to increase stiffness. Because all you're doing is you're increasing your stress shielding and you won't actually get to the problem until maybe you're hitting a hold at full span. You're on it faffing with your feet, then you get the loss of stiffness and in real time with body weight in a bad position, that injury gets isolated again. And that's why it becomes recurrent. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. It's a really sense. interesting, yeah, it's a really interesting approach, but it's one that I find works really well. So when do you, so if you can climb around a lumbrical injury, let's say you hurt your lumbrical on Tuesday, um, how long before yeah. you should, you know, before you can start crimping and climbing with crimping, assuming that there's no pain when you're crimping. And then when would you bring in um, three finger drag, gentle hanging for longer durations? So I treat, I treat the sort of wound itself like anything, I would say, you know, you need to give it at least two or three days to start settling down. You'll find a bit less stiffness. Probably the drag test won't be excruciating at that point. And at that point there, I would start loading it probably with pickups from the floor so you can be sure about the load you're taking. That's in a drag position. With the crimped position, I would probably try them in the clinic and see straight away, can you actually hang in a crimp? And a lot of the time they can, but I wouldn't make them move their body around that position. I'd want them to see for the first week that they can get a little routine on their fingerboards, progressing from a 40 to a 30 to a 20 uh, and maintain that crimp. Uh, I generally want that climber to be a bit more experienced and to know the um, climb they're going back onto. So if they're going on a board, I want to know that they've been on a board plenty of times so they know how to move their body around that. If they weren't experienced, I wouldn't let them do that. I would be more off the wall loading and I'd want metrics to kind of guarantee the numbers are coming up. 
So it really depends on the experience of the climber. If they're intuitive, I give them the tools. If they're not, I hold them back and take control of it with reins and load cell testing. Mm-hmm. And you probably want them, if they are climbing on a board again, you probably want them to climb in a slow kind of controlled manner. You don't want them to be dead pointing holds where they might accidentally catch it in an open position. Yeah, that's right. And that's where the foothold size is key. Okay. You want to make sure when someone comes to you with this sort of problem that there, there's as few rules as possible, but keeping them as safe as possible. You don't want climbing to suddenly become this like prison where they've got a million rules. So for me, it's usually about changing the footholds and that allows them to control their body weight and then they choose the holds that they're moving through. Um, and they're always really nicely surprised by how good the hand feels. Then they go into a three-finger drag with maybe 50% body weight for 20 seconds and they feel that ramp up and they go, oh, it's still there. It's amazing how different those two things are. Mm. But it's just making sure that you know exactly what you've injured and why it doesn't hurt the start. Um, and, and then obviously then you go into performance and you do the stiffness stuff after. But you need to get past the stress shielding to get to the vulnerable unit. That's really important. And then how would you progress those long duration drag hangs? Would you progress, would you stick with a certain duration and progress the load or decrease the hold size or try to increase the duration? What would that look like? Yeah, so generally, unless you're extremely elite, you know, and you're going to be doing some horrible dead point move at full span, body weight hangs, three finger drag is usually good enough to then start thinking about performance. If you can do a 20 second body weight, three finger hang, that, that for me, with no ramp up in pain, where previously it was ramping up after maybe five to eight seconds, then that's tangible progress. And it would be looking at making it more performance based, less time. And yeah, starting to think about climbing and using that. So going into three finger drag, flicking to a crimp and starting to use that sort of seat belt of extra muscle and train that position a bit more. Then the footholds get worse, so you're doing it more in your hands. And I like to make climbing the rehab as much as I can, to be mm. honest. Okay. Yeah. And for those longer hangs, you want people to be in that kind of discomfort but not sharp pain kind of zone? Like, do you have them yeah. stay on the same size hold or the same load until they can do a 20-second yeah. hang without any pain before they progress it? Or how do you, how do you think about that? For the three finger, yeah, I want three finger to be really specific because the injury is really specific. And if you don't take it through to completion, then you're going to come a cropper when it comes to, like I say, a vulnerable open hand position where you're spaffing around for ages. So you have to hold it there and see it through on the same hold before you then start switching it up. Mm-hmm. The good thing is you do see nice progression with it. If it is a straightforward muscle tendon junction, lumbrical combination issue, like I say, that will sort out the forearm drag tendon problem. But then, you know, you're going into the lumbrical itself and you can get stuck into that. I mean, there's lots of things you can do. You can use um, therabands, so you can put theraband around the front two and just flex like that and back two. You could use things like um, the power balls. So, you know, I like those for intrinsic strengthening. So you're just taking one of those power balls and gripping around it and, and really working the knuckles of the hand. Um, that's really good for them as well. And the combination of two things is really, really good in terms of thinking about lumbrical and the open hand. Okay. Before we go any further, do you have um, do you have a resource for people that 
you know, are, are just listening in their car right now. They can't visualize all this stuff. Do you have a place where they can go and say lumbrical injury and then, you know, these exercises pop up? I don't know. Um, <laughs> okay. I, I don't. I, I'd, li- I'd like Instagram to be a bit more like that. I am trying to put a bit of effort into Instagram, but I mean, <laughs> it's a laughable effort because I perhaps post once a month, so it's not really enough. But I, I did one on Crimpfinger recently, and I, and I wanted that to have as much information as possible to get people started. And I'm going to do one on Lumbricals next. So the things we're talking about here is actually we'll, we'll, I'll put into a visual. So my next post will be on this. And it will have a condensed approach to what I'm describing here. So you don't really need to remember any of it. Okay, that's perfect. I'll, I'll do my best with the show notes as well. So if you guys are listening and you want to refer back later, um, check out the show notes for this episode, nuggetclimbing.com. And I'll try to organize the questions and then have some resources for each uh, type of injury that we talk about. Um, going yeah, back I'll to... I'll do my best with listening um, to, to try to make, to make it as clear as possible as well. Yeah. No, this is great. Yeah. This is super helpful. Um, going back to prevention and these injuries becoming more commonplace, what's going on there? Mm. Is it that we're training three-finger drag more or too much or not enough? How do we prevent lumbrical injuries? Well, what you're seeing in certainly in indoor climbing is we're going from old-school primping to massive volumes, open hand, um, positions where sometimes you're not even flexing the finger joints, you're just working the hand knuckles, which asks a function of the hand that we've, you know, devolved hundreds and hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago. And the hand just isn't very strong like that. And the footholds are often quite bad when you're doing techie stuff. So whereas before it would normally have to be quite a, a steep climb with tiny holes, so there's a lot of force through the fingers. I think when the more open you are, if the footholds are bad or the movement's bad, um, you just don't have the reserves there to um, to be resilient. And I think climbing's an interesting one, isn't it? Because you sign you sign your waiver and you can fall off the top of a bouldering wall. And the same way, like setters are basically trying to make you fail and find weaknesses, and that's all the way from World Cup down to your first climber. And I just think it's exposing weaknesses, which everyday life just doesn't prepare you for. Mm. And that's it. We definitely undertrain the open hand grip. Is that the uh, recommendation for prevention? Is just more open hand strengthening and training? I think c- certainly grip gears. You know, you want to think about your grip gears. Um, Say that again. Grip gears. Grip gears. Yeah. So you know, a car's got lots of gears, but a lot of climbers they tend to just use one gear. Mm. Um, normally, it's it's full crimp or it's half crimp, but your hand knuckles are engaged, and. Any single, you know, grips just not going to be conducive to a long longevity in your career. Um, a nice, easy way to think about it is if you're climbing, particularly in the first half of your session, let's say you're warming up, look at your hand. Do the knuckles need to be flexed or can you relax them? And if you can relax them, then relax them because that's going to put um, way less stress through your pulleys and it's going to isolate the, the forearm tendons. It's going to actually improve your condition. And a lot of people probably don't stop and think about that. And the result there is that they just overload the intrinsics. They're, they're in higher flexion angles with their knuckles and they get more synovitis, skin synovitis and things like that. So I think, you know, choose, choose your grip gears. And if you want to do one, just relax the punching knuckles in your hand um, <laughs> when you don't need them. And you'll be amazed how overdone that contraction is. 
Hmm. The punching knuckles. <laughs> yeah. Or, 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 which, what do you prefer? Punching knuckle or, or hand knuckle? <laughs> I think punching knuckles great. That paints that paints oh, the right picture. It, yeah. it will remain punching knuckles. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else on lumber coals? Should we move on to hypermobile fingers or do you have any other thoughts? I think that's it. I, I would say if you want a, a good example of grip gears in action, um, I've always been impressed with uh, Magos, Alex Magos. The first time I noticed him being slightly different on holds was when he was holding really small holds and he was cutting loose in strict half crimp. Okay. Mm. Instead of wrapping and sticking his elbow out, I thought, man, his 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 half crimp is so strong. I his forearm tendons are really strong. And he doesn't need to add torque through his punching knuckles to really accentuate that. And if you want to look at um, a good example of grip gears, if you watch his ascent of Sleeping Lion, you'll see him using every single grip gear there is. And that just shows you, you know, his intuition when he's climbing, probably efficiency, but also that sort of approach will give you longevity. So I, I'd recommend if you want to see an example of that, have a look at it and you'll see he has got a massive vocabulary of grips that he uses. Yeah. And, and that's why he can climb these sort of climbs. Yeah. For uh, for yeah, the climbers really listening, say that again. Sorry, it's really interesting to watch. For the climbers listening, that are uh, I'm kind of imagining, you know, two different types of people on the ends of the spectrum. So we've got our full crimper. Maybe they live in like Bishop or something, you know. And yeah. uh, all they ever do is full crimp. They never drag anything. On the other hand, you've got the ABC team kid who drags everything and it's never crimped a hold in their life. Um, yeah. How do you recommend? climbers introduce themselves and their bodies to a new grip position? Do they start out gently on the hangboard? Do they start using it on the wall first in their warm-ups? Um, yeah, any recommendations there? Well, the one thing that sort of marries up all these things is that it's a, a long tendon attached to a muscle and the tendon needs to be able to store energy well. We know tendons take ages to develop. You know, there's no hack for that. There just really isn't. It's snake oil to think there, there is. You just need to be consistent. So for me, it would be doing things that are really reproducible really regularly that don't require lots of fat. So it would definitely be fingerboarding for me. And it doesn't need to be at body weight. You can do it lighter if you want, um, and that, that'll be fine. But it's tendon ad adaptation. So a, a nice career climbing, lots of different types of climbing, not getting um, too focused on one thing that'll be good for your tendons. Um, and yeah, doing consistent fingerboarding will also be good for your tendons, but don't expect quick results. Mm -hmm. You're looking at months and years. And that's why the people who have got the best fingers have been climbing for years. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That's great. Be patient. Be patient. That's the thing. Yeah. And we will be right back. This episode is brought to you by Rhino Skin Solutions. Rhino provides the best skincare products on the market for climbers made from plant-based, great quality ingredients with no fillers and no BS. I still use the repair cream all the time and it really does wonders for helping my skin heal faster after a hard outdoor bouldering session. If I come home from a day of climbing and my skin is torn up, I wash my hands. I love Rhino's Wash product for that, that's new. 
and then I immediately apply the repair cream and I apply it several times throughout the evening. If I have really damaged skin, like a flapper or a split or something like that, I've been psyched on a new product from Rhino called Split Plus. It's made for severely chapped or worn or cracked skin, and it's awesome. I was recently trying a project on Flagstaff Mountain near Boulder, Colorado, which is the sharpest place I've ever climbed, and I was using Split Plus a lot, and it really, really helped. If you wanna level up your skin game, head over to rhinoskinsolutions.com and check out their great line of products and enter code NUGGET at checkout for 20% off your next order. Again, that's rhinoskinsolutions.com. Use code NUGGET at checkout for 20% off the best skincare products in the game. This episode is brought to you by Kaya. I recently started using Kaya, and as a climber, this is one of the most useful apps that I have on my phone. Kaya gives you digital guidebooks for more than 50 top bouldering destinations in North America, and more are being added to the app all the time. And these guidebooks are legit. The folks at Kaya actually partner with local guidebook authors and get exact GPS locations on boulders, detailed climbing area info and navigation, comprehensive topos, and thousands of beta videos, all downloadable for offline use. Let's say you're going on a trip to Bishop or Red Rocks or Squamish for the first time. You can browse the guidebook, tap on a climb you wanna go check out, download beta videos for it if you want to, use GPS coordinates that will take you right to the boulder. Even if you don't have cell service, you can send the boulder and then you can add your send to the logbook all within the Kaya app. It's so cool. This app was created by a group of badass climbers. I'm friends with a lot of these folks. They're super cool people and they just wanted to make a useful tool that's going to improve the climbing experience for all of us. It's super cool. Check out kayaclimb.com or download the Kaya app from the App Store to get started. And if you're psyched, you can use my special link right there in the episode notes or use code NUGGET at checkout for 20% off your first year of Kaya Pro. Download Kaya today to get started. And now back to the show. All right, let's jump into hypermobile fingers, recommendations for people with hypermobile fingers. This question's from Jeannie. Do you have any finger training tips for hypermobile fingers? It's for my wife. It hasn't been an issue yet. She mostly tries to open and drag crimps as half and full crimp looks riskier. Wanted to know if there's any advice for uh, finger training in general for folks with hypermobile fingers as I haven't heard any professionals talk about this topic. Yeah, so isn't that that's really interesting because she's bucked the trend in her fear of crimping. She's trained the position that she's going to be most vulnerable in mm. by being open. That's amazing, and that's very that's very unusual. So most people who are hypermobile will want to close that hand so they're getting as much tension as possible because they'll have you know stretchier tendons that don't store energy so well. And so the more muscles are firing, the more they make up for the fact that tendons aren't storing that energy. So they've actually done a great job because they've done it the harder way there. And that is, that is unusual. Um, if you're listening to this, there's, there's a score we use as therapists to look for hypermobility. It's called the Baton score. It's a nine-point score, and it uses different movements to test for hypermobility. And normally, you'd need a, a five out of nine on this score 
to be classified as hypermobile. But if you're a climber with an intrinsic problem and you can bend your pinky back to 90, then I don't really care about the rest of the score. You're hypermobile as far as I'm concerned. Hmm. If you can go all the way back to 90 degrees comfortably on that pinky, if we look a bit further down and you can get your thumb to touch your wrist in flexion, so you drop your wrist down like you're doing a muscle up on a ring, and then, yeah, take your thumb and push it down. If that touches, then your wrists are going to have that natural stretchier uh, makeup as well. Wow, I, I'm way closer on both of those tests than I ever would have imagined, actually. I'm, I'm sitting here doing both of yeah, those things. That's, really, that's positive to me, that. My pinky just went to 90 and my, my thumb can, it's not easy, but yeah. I can touch my thumb to my forearm. So that's, I'm, I'm paying very close attention now. <laughs> yeah. I never yeah. would have, I never would have categorized, my, categorized myself as hypermobile. So this is fascinating. Well, you might not be because you only score four out of nine for those combined things. So you have a point each for your pinkies and a point each for your thumbs. But if you can't get your palms to the floor without your knees bending and your elbows and your knees don't hyperextend, then, you know, technically you wouldn't be classed as hypermobile. But if you had a wrist or a finger injury, I'd be putting hypermobility into the mix and considering that in my rehab. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah, good. Um, so the, obviously that that stretchiness isn't, isolated to the tendons themselves the you know the, the ligaments will be just as stretchy the capsule will be just as stretchy and the volar plate in particular for um hypermobile people that's the ligament connecting the um the joints in your fingers underneath on the palm side they'll be really stretchy too so one of the main things and uh, what was was it jenny uh genie genie so with, with G, for genie to start progressing from a drag to a crimp, you'd really want to make sure that you're protecting the volar plate, the stretchy ligament at the end of her finger, the DIP joint. And so all you'd do is you'd look at how long the end joint, the end finger is, so the distal phalanx. You'd get her on an edge that's a bit bigger than that. So most edges that would do that would be about 25 mil, maybe 30 mil. A little bigger than one pad, yeah. Yeah, big, yeah. Yeah, deeper than one pad is long. So it's going over the joint and that will protect the volar plate and that will allow her to really feel her half crimp with a stable end of the finger as opposed to allowing all that power to dissipate through the stretchy volar plate and essentially see the, the bottom of the finger getting really stretchy and, and going into higher flexion angles with the PIP and that will lead to some overload issues So if she doesn't like build up slowly. So a flatter edge that's a bit deeper than the end pad is long, and then trying to go into stricter half grip positions would be a good starting point for her. Okay. And that neatly works around her hypermobility whilst exposing the tendons in her forearm, because if she doesn't have her punching knuckles engaged and they're open, like a magos, typical magos half grip, she'll be doing a good job of exposing the tendons in the forearm without over-revving through her hand knuckles. Very generally speaking, is the solution for people with hypermobility in whatever joint just to strengthen that area more? Is that kind of the solution? I'm obviously drastically oversimplifying, but... No, yeah, that's a reasonable question. So getting strong is really important, but you'll find these people who are very hypermobile. And if you go to Ellis Danlos type um, side of the spectrum, which is where you've got hypermobility that affects you more systemically and you'll have all sorts of other issues as well, cardiac issues, et cetera. 
you'll find that their proprioception's really not great. And that's because if you have a if you're not hypermobile, you'll have quite stiff endings in your tendons. And there's something called a Golgi tendon reflex. And that thing tells your brain what's going on in space and time. You've got a much better idea and you've got lots of connective tissue all telling your body what that limb is doing in space and time. It's much easier to coordinate that. So you'll find people who are really hypermobile struggle to coordinate the strength. If you just think of it as basic binary strength, you have to do proprioceptive work uh, mm. to really improve that. And um, generally speaking, if you've got the grip happy, you want to make as much muscle work around that so that they're really good at coordinating the muscles and really understanding where their body is in space and time. So a good example of that would be to take the grip we've just described. Um, you'd get them to maybe extend their elbows, so lock their elbows out, and work on pulling down through the shoulder blades so that they've got a really nice direct connection between the shoulder blade and their hand. And there's a lot of good evidence around shoulder blade stability and grip strength being linked. So that's one thing mm. I like to do with people who are hypermobile who are starting to develop their grip gears. How do we make it as specific to them so that they're not vulnerable on the wall, having really strong hands and a really noodly body around that hand? <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, so that that's, that's your approach. And you'll see them in clinic. You'll see someone who's really hypermobile because in the waiting room, they'll be wrapped around the chair. They'll literally squirm <laughs> into a position and their foot will be like ivy around the chair. And that's because they're trying to get some stability um, so that their body feels like it can rest in a nice, easy position. Wow. So there's lots of little cues you can see in people who are really hypermobile. And you, they do require a slightly more specific approach sometimes. Okay. I'm uh, I'm going off script a little bit here, but your thumb test got me interested in wrist strengthening. Um, yes, I think I'm. You know, just doing that test, I realized like maybe I'm. I have mobile wrists, and uh, I've. I feel like I've always been prone to wrist injuries. I've always felt like I had weak wrists, like back in high school when I was a weightlifter, and then in climbing. Um, that seems like a common thing. I, I've never had like a really serious wrist injury, but it just always seems like something I have to be careful of um do you have any go-to wrist strengthening exercises that you give to climbers mm. yeah so um, it's interesting that the wrist the, the more open you are with the wrist generally the more vulnerable that unit is to traction type injuries uh, and twisting injuries and the more you extend your wrist bend it backwards the more locked and stable it is so people with tfcc type issues there's lots, I've seen this happen lots of walls, and I see it a lot in the histories of people with hypermobility in the wrists. They'll say that they were in a, a sloper position and their whole body was basically dragging down into a vulnerable open position where the muscles are essentially pretty disengaged. And that's where the problem occurred. It can occur in lots of other ways, but there is a correlation with this. And for those guys, we get them to climb in extension. And that is a, a much more stable position where, again, you've got more muscle contractions, more stability there. So that that's one thing I would look to work on with those guys. I like simple things like I like people to do pronated uh, elbow flexion exercises. So um, the example is you take a, a weight and you bend your wrist back. <laughs> He's got a kettlebell within reach. I love it. Yeah, yeah, always. Uh, and then your wrist is an <laughs> extension. You want to keep that thing extended whilst you move the elbow. So right now, Paul Paul's standing and doing a bicep curl, but with his palm face downward, basically. 
Yeah, palm down, wrist engaged. Wrist engaged, like, wrist flex back towards his bicep. Yeah, imagine you're doing a full crimp. Now do that with whilst holding a, a, a weight with your palm down, knuckles up. Mm. And, and that's a good way to make sure that you're training the wrist extensors which cross your elbow to actually function like you would when you're climbing. You know, it's not when we climb, we don't do that. We, we do this. So it makes sense to not do loads of wrist curls, but actually uh, treat it with a stable locked position and, and train it like that. So that's how we climb. Okay. And how would you, so when my issues have popped up in my wrist, it's usually from being on a sloper when I'm bent at the wrist. So my hand's pretty open yeah. and it, it almost feels like it hyperextends like this way, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. How, and, and then, you know, like I do want to climb some things with slopers. How do you, prepare your wrist specifically for those big open slopers that can feel tweaky to some people? Yeah, it's a really good question. Uh, that, it's, it's interesting. You, that's exactly what I was talking about. You, you literally fit that bill perfectly. Um, so with, with your wrist, you've got side to side motion, radial and all the deviation, and the um, stability of your wrist improves as you can move your um, wrist upwards. So you imagine throwing a dart, they call it a dart throwing motion. So you, you bring your wrist back to you and then you throw the dart and move towards the pinky side with the wrist. Yeah. When your wrist is in that cocked position there, that contraction is a really good one for wrist instabilities. Um, and that's sometimes trained to try and improve people whose wrists pop out. So if you look at my wrist here, you'll see it pops out mm. quite easily. But because I've trained it, it never pops out whilst I'm climbing. Um, if, I didn't, if I didn't train that, it would be vulnerable in those positions you've described. So working the wrist stabilizers on the thumb side of your forearm is good for that. Um, working your wrist extension is good for that. And, and gradually exposing it to more open positions once it's stable in extension, bent back, is usually the kind of order I'd go in with that. Okay. So you already described a wrist extension exercise with the kind of reverse curl. How would you strengthen the thumb side of your wrist, like doing this motion? Yeah. So you could do hammer curls, so thumb up, um, elbow flexion. You could do something really simple, like take a band and hold it, a strong band, and hold it like you're riding a bike, and turn your palms all the way up to supinate them, and then pull outwards, that would work those stabilizers there. And that wouldn't get your peak forces up. You wouldn't reach maximum torque, but you'd certainly warm up those muscles that are, you know, you're trying to wake up so that's more stable in that position. And then you'd start just training more into that position. So things like the, the power balls, they are really good um, things to buy if you want to try and train your wrists. Um, couple of the GB guys, one guy, I'm not asking if I can talk about it, so I won't name him, but he, he couldn't hang off that. He couldn't pull down on it at all um, because his wrists would pop out. And we've trained a lot on that. And now he can do one arm on it really easy. And it, that mm. exercise in particular has been really good for him. And these uh, are Rolling those... Rolling Thunder, that's another one. The power balls are just those big wooden balls that you, you hang from, like in a yeah. hangboard area or something? Okay. Yeah, that's right. Gotcha. Yeah. So you can practice pulling up on that lifting up from the ground you could do it as part of like a pin pull routine so you could work your wrists a little more specifically and again you know like a, a a rolling thunder one of those wrist rollers they're really good for that as well 
Okay. And you can take that to a gym and clip it to any machine, like a lap pull down, an upright row. You can attach it to some kettlebells. There's loads of ways you can work your wrist in those specific positions. Um, it doesn't necessarily need to be climbing for that one. And, and that's almost better because you don't want your body rotating around an unstable wrist. That's new, Normally, it's not the position. It's what your body's doing around it, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And so to train without needing that, that need to re- respect friction is probably a better way of doing it. Because inevitably, if you're on a bad hold that's really rounded, you'll get your body as far underneath it as possible, which forces you into more flexion. Right. So that's an exercise best kept for off the wall. Okay. To get volume in. Yeah. Yeah, I think I've uh, I think I've spent a lot less time over the course of my climbing on wrist work than I than I probably should have. That's something I want to spend more <laughs> time on. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see what happens for me. Yeah. Cool. Uh, should we go back to fingers and jump into synovitis and yeah. capsulitis? Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. You hear people talking about that a lot. This is a pretty straightforward question. Casca wants to know, are there any effective treatment options for synovitis, uh, swollen finger joints, other than not climbing? And I basically have the same exact question for capsulitis. I have a little capsulitis in my uh, my dip joint of my left index finger that's just kind of been there for a year and a half now and it never really hurts anymore but it's also just you know it's 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 just still a little oh, yeah. bigger than my other one and i wonder if it'll ever go away but yeah Can let's straighten that so you're showing me a finger that isn't quite straight yeah let's see. okay and that's been a slow burn it's taken a while to develop has it uh, it came on a year and a half ago. I don't want to derail the the question here and take over the, yeah, yeah, this yeah. podcast, but yeah, it came on a year and a half ago. I was uh, trying an experiment with daily fingerboarding, just went a little overboard. And then it persisted for a while and was painful when I would crimp. It would flare up when I was crimping a lot. And now yeah. it's, I've kind of like taken enough breaks from hard crimping that it, that's not, that's no longer a problem. I don't feel any aggravation or anything when I crimp. Um, but I just, okay. it's just kind of a thicker knuckle now. And I wonder if it'll ever go back to normal. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so capsulitis and synovitis are diagnoses to see people getting given quite a lot. And for me, that you could go into the biology of each one, but it, it doesn't really matter. You know, essentially you've got a joint that's unhappy. You've got to figure out why. And that's more important than the diagnosis of capsulitis and synovitis. The two main reasons you'll get these, uh, the first is from a trauma. And it can be relatively innocuous. So you could get a small collateral ligament issue in your in your PIP joint, middle joint of your finger. And if you don't respect that and you don't let it heal properly, that doesn't mean not climbing. It just means not climbing on holes that have a lot of rotation in them. You'll find you can develop slight laxity in that joint and then develop a lot of secondary overload issues. So a lot of the muscles from the hand, palm and um, dorsal side, the top, the back of the hand, they'll come in and they'll be under a lot more load because they're really not designed to take over the job of that really thick, strong ligament. Mm. And that would be a primary cause of a capsulitis or a synovitis. But secondary causes, and this perhaps answers the question, uh, from external factors, so no single um, episode of trauma, but much more from a, a, a slow burn overload. One of the most normal reasons is an injury with the neighboring finger. So if you've never quite rehabbed an isolated finger injury, perhaps let's say in your middle finger, you're more likely to develop that problem in the ring finger. Because mm. it's trying to like 
accommodate the extra load again. Yeah, exactly. And you'll see overload, signs of overload like that. And you've got to work backwards. And that's why a really good history is really important. Um, and then making sure that that person is rehabbed properly. So yeah, I always look at that and I'll dive into that. And sometimes I individually test each finger and I'll, I'll take it to max testing. And that will give me some useful figures sometimes. And then you'll find out about the injury afterwards. So why is that 40% weaker than the other side? And, and then they'll say, why? And then you kind of work backwards and fix it that way. Uh, wrist extension is important. So if you're not strong into wrist extension and you're crimping something, so that's wrist bent back, then what happens is the wrist will pack up and you'll have to try harder through your fingers to maintain the angle of your wrist. And I've said this in a post, essentially your finger flexors become passive wrist extensors as you over crimp to maintain the position. So having really strong back of your wrist muscles will allow you to focus on flexing the fingers whilst the wrist is locked in place by the stronger muscles in the back of the um, forearm, which are designed to do that job, not the finger flexors. Interesting. That's a really important one. Yeah. Pronation is another one. So pronation is basically turning your palm down. And if you're looking at someone's pronation, if you want to test yourselves, if you're listening to this, you need to sit with your elbows tucked into your side so that your shoulders can't compensate. And then rotate your palms down and look at how flat the back of your forearm is, the wrist, and see whether or not there's a difference in that rotation. And if there isn't, then great. If there is, and you can't rotate that one down so much, that lack of rotation will be absorbed in the fingers. If you can't turn your hand down flat and crimp, then you'll rotate. And that rotation is stored up in your PIP joint, DIP joint. And that's a really good one not to not to miss. You find that you're really getting into the nitty gritty of um, potentially chronic problems that have never been sorted. That's really interesting. Yeah, I, d- I didn't expect. I mean, the two main things that you've listed so far have nothing to do directly with the fingers. It's train your wrist extensions and your the, your your pronation in your entire forearm and hand. Um, yeah, that's so. You're really just trying to eliminate. Um, what, what's I'm, I'm blanking on the word here. Um, rotational stress. Mm-hmm. That's what you're trying to really kill. Any rotational stress, unnecessary rotational stress out of the fingers. I was going to say overcompensation. You're trying to eliminate anything that would cause your fingers to overcompensate either in torque Correct. or or load or yeah, 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 yeah. Either through neighboring fingers or from rotational stress um, from the from the wrist. That's that's a big one, and. Um, the, the, actually, the way I found out about this, um, or came to my attention, was a guy who's really, really good, who basically never gets problems with, with his ring fingers, developed bilateral ring finger problems. And he called me up when I was in university, I was lecturing, and I didn't have time to talk properly, but he explained it, and it really didn't make sense to me. He, he, same board that he always climbs on, but both ring fingers starting to become sore. And at the end, on the drive home, I called him up again and said, what, what are your wrists like? He said, they're really stiff. I can't turn my, my wrists down. And that didn't make sense either because if you've never had a problem doing that, then you shouldn't develop one all of a sudden. And we, we, we discovered that he has a problem with the joints in his body due to some sort of inflammatory joint issue. And that was why his ring fingers were hurting. And we found out it was the pronation that was the issue. Mm. So that, that's a really good example of how losing rotational pronation will load the fingers 
um, if ever there was one, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so people with uh, synovitis and capsulitis can work on their pronation mobility and their uh, external flexion of the wrist. Um, what should yeah. their climbing look like if they have swollen knuckles, swollen finger joints in the meantime, like while they're working on those issues? Can they keep climbing? Should they avoid crimping? What should that look like? Again, it's that, that thing of grip gears. So if you're warming up, don't, fl- don't flex your hand knuckles. And then the flexion angle of the angry joint will reduce. You know, that's one easy way you can do that. Um, a lot of people with really, really bad joints, um, bad, you know, synovitis, they tend to really like drag positions because you get a little bit of traction from it. And that tends to help quite nicely. Mm. And the other thing is, it might not be inside the joint. It could easily be something coming up from the extensor tendon, the lateral band or the lumbar core. And they can be independent pain generators that can become really, really similar to a capsulitis synovitis type approach. And so training those small extensors is actually a brilliant exercise. There's no other way to get that bit of your tendon over the PIP joint to engage other than to straighten those fingers or work your lumbar cords. So working the intrinsics is really important. Traction tends to be therapeutic. And, you know, again, the grip is don't flex those hand knuckles if you don't need to. Uh, those are nice, easy ones to work on. Okay. There's coban wrapping. That tends to be quite nice. So, you know, the stretchy tape that you'd use to stabilize someone's ankle. Mm. You can um, put that down the finger from tip all the way to base. And if there's swelling there, that's really nice to reduce the swelling. It's firefighting. So you've got to figure out the why <laughs> behind the what. Mm-hmm. But that is something that you can use once you're kind of understanding it rather than sending someone away for years doing that with their finger gradually becoming an elephant, you know? (laughs) (laughs) It's firefighting. I like that. Yeah. 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 Right. Okay. So, uh, basically just prioritize more open finger positions, either half crimp or drag, um, while you're working on the, the other things that we talked about and then finger extensors, like with, with, uh, like those, um, strong mind or strong mind or power mind or whatever they're called. Bands, yeah, you can those, those sorts of things. You just get a band and wrap it around your fingers. You can open your hand that way. Okay. Uh, lumbar calls, you're basically just flexing your hand knuckle, your punching knuckle without the fingers bending. And then you can take it to things like the, the that power ball. That, that's a really good one for your intrinsics as well. Um, yeah, a combination of those things is really good. And you'll know it's working because after doing it, you'll be able to flex with less symptoms. Mm. And, you know, a really good example of that is someone who has what feels like a capsulitis and you get them to basically resist their finger bending. So you engage their extensor network and you'd hold that for maybe 20 seconds. And that's just to get some analgesic effect, perhaps a little bit of stretching in that tendon. So you're losing stiffness and that might improve and that would inform what you do next. So again, there's the danger in assuming capsulitis without thinking about all the dynamic little stabilizers that work around it. That's probably one where it's better to come in and see someone who knows what they're on about just to figure out whether that is the case. And if it isn't, then you go back to thinking, well, what are the big mechanical stresses of these joints and how do I offload them and mm-hmm. get a plan that way? Okay. Awesome. Anything else on that before we move down the list oh, here? It's pretty good, that. Yeah, it's great. Okay. I got a couple questions 
um, that we can lump together here. A question from Neil and a question from Dylan that are kind of in the same vein. This is about uh, prevention of finger injuries and finger health in general, um, promoting yeah. finger health in general. So Neil writes, any suggestions suggestions for promoting finger health and recovering for aging climbers? Um, I know a lot of older climbers who just have dull finger pain for uh, two to three days after hard climbing. In my case, this seems to be more psychological than an actual injury since the next day my fingers could feel okay, but then start aching with lack of activity as I recover. Uh, Dylan had a really similar question. Basically, any recommendations for people that have for aging climbers specifically that have achy joints. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, two to three days of stiffness is not right. That's, I would want to ask why that that's there and dive into it, even though they're not too worried about it. To me, that's too long. Um, regardless of age. Yeah. Yeah. Regardless of age. Yeah, I mean, to me, that's not a sustainable level of symptom because there's nothing that Nothing superficial is going to give you two to three days of symptoms. There's got to be something more entrenched there, mm. especially if it's a, you know got more than a 24-hour pattern. I'm certainly more interested in that. Yeah, with the aging hand, so things we typically see, kind of what you showed me in your DIP joint there. So we, we tend to see that the PIP joint, so the middle finger knuckle, won't straighten as well, and the DIP joint won't bend quite as well. Mm. And it, you know... What you've got to be careful of here is give advice that will make something worse. So um, with the PIP joint, I would only encourage mo mobilizing that if you didn't have, let's say you want to straighten that PIP joint. If you get pain and pinching over the back of the knuckle, that's the road to nowhere. That's not going to work. You're going to get more irritation and impingement at the back of that joint. But if you do it and you get stretched through the backside, the, the sort of pulley side, then that's just a tight capsule and there's a green light to stretch that out and that'll let you straighten your finger better. And same thing goes for the DIP joint. If you flex it and you're not getting really, really horrible snagging pain over the nail side of the joint, then, then do that and get some mobility back in that, in that joint. And if you can do both of those things, then you'd want to supplement and support those. So for you with the DIP joint, I'd want to make sure I had as much flexion in that joint as possible. And then I would go into something like active finger curls, where you're really kind of working into a full uh, crimp, bending that joint uh, is working. And then you can do things like, um, there's something called a finish ball, which is a bit like a power ball, but it's blocked. So you have to grip your fingers around it. Okay. And it, it, it gave me the, the coach who talk to me about that. I should reference them because it was a while ago, but they told me about it. I can't remember his name, but I'll, I'll remember it. But basically that's a really nice way of activating the DIP joint. So that when you pick up, you're getting good DIP strengthening, mm. which is quite hard to do. Yeah. It's, it's quite a hard thing to do because yeah, inevitably what happens is you end up over revving, over flexing the PIP and going into hyperextension of the DIP. So yeah, that's a neat exercise to do. It's called a finish ball. If you look it up, Okay. Yeah, that yeah. that makes a lot of sense for, I mean, for me personally, but I feel like most of my friends have very similar issues. Like we all lose a lot of mobility, you know, of our finger joints yeah. at the PIP. And it's hard for me to go completely straight 
with uh, exactly. with the middle fingers of both hands. And, and then, yes. at the, like you're saying with the DIP, the distal joint near the fingertip, I can't flex it as far as I, you know, as far as I deal. And then if I'm dragging, yeah. I'm compensating with the PIP joint, which just has way worse exactly. leverage. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's just really, I, I noticed when you did that, your, your ring finger on the left side looks like it's quite stiff. You can't really straighten that guy. Yeah. So, well, maybe we're consciously doing it, but yeah, your body adapts to the positions you put it in. So if you're always flexing that middle joint, it's going to be hard to straighten. And if you're always hyperextending the end joint, it's going to be hard to bend. Um, so it's just make, making sure you're working against that and then thinking, well, how do I actively keep it there? Because you don't want to make a joint more mobile, but not give it some strength. Mm. So yeah, it's great when you can find those things. And it's amazing how many people can improve the range in the hand and that'll preserve the joint because you're accessing more cartilage to move through range. If you make any joint, if you brace someone in the, in an elbow lock at 10 degrees and got to use that the whole life, they get a lot more wear in that joint early. And it's the same principle. Find range, use strength to stabilize that and you'll probably reduce the level of joint problems you'll have in later life. Okay. We're all going to have them as climates. <laughs> yeah, you just, you just answered my next question, which is if you have... You know, for me, like my middle fingers, the PIP joint, I can't straighten them all the way, but I don't have any issues or pain. How important is it that I try to get that mobility back? And it just sounds like it's going to help me have healthier fingers down the down the road. Yeah, for sure. And the other thing I talk about, I've talked about straightening the middle finger and bending the end. But if you do a lumbrical stretch and you don't get horrible pain over the peak of your PIP joint, then really stretching those guys out, if you're really overloading them, and then working on some flexion-based work through the hand knuckles, that'll help stabilize this joint. Because your lumbricals are really weird. They bend your hand knuckle, but they straighten your PIP joint, mm. which is hard to get your head around. But that contraction there is good for helping straighten the PIP joint, which is a bit counterintuitive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> do, you, do you load that when you're keeping your fingers straight but bending at the the hand joint or the punch knuckle, as you yeah. say, do you load that somehow? Is that the power ball or, or do you do that some other way? Yeah. So power ball will do it. Um, you've got, you, because you don't, you want to get some meaningful load. So you're going to need some proper force, but if you break a uh, TheraBand over your front two fingers and hold it and practice just flexing like that, okay. but the, the, the prompt, the cue is don't bend the finger. That's the, that's the contraction you're trying to go for. So I'm actively straightening my fingers as much as I can whilst resisting at the punching knuckle and using a TheraBand for that. And that's really good if you're recovering from a lumbrical injury, if you found that you can open up the PIP joint and you want to try and stabilize it. These are like nice little exercises that should make a tangible improvement in keeping that joint free and loose. Okay. But just to say, um, if anyone's getting, you know, stiffness in their joints that lasts more than 45 minutes, particularly if there's any redness or heat coming off it, and, and you've been plugging away at rehab, then go and get some blood tests and check whether or not you've got any problems with gout, you know, rheumatoid arthritis, where you're, essentially it's an immune system problem where your cartilage is being attacked because it thinks it's a foreign problem. And these things are really important. It, it's not usual, it's not normal to have stiffness in your joints lasting more than 30 minutes in the morning and that goes with anything and rheumatologists if they hear you're getting a morning stiffness lasting more than 45 minutes they'll immediately be more interested in what you've got to say mm-hmm. so any therapist listen to that definitely watch out for those if you've got these repeat 
um, people are coming in with progressively worsening joints or if yourself you've got that cycle then then go and talk to your gp about it and see whether or not you've got anything mm-hmm. it's important yeah, yeah that all makes sense are there any um is there any level of achiness or pain that older climbers should just expect like that i mean because you hear that kind of stuff all the time and i'm always like you know at least personally for myself trying to push back on that like no i want to have like I want to be incredibly healthy as I age. I don't want to accept that I'm just going to be, you know, in pain more or achier more or able to yeah. do less, whatever. But, um, but is, is there a certain level of, um, I don't know, wear and tear, so to speak, that's normal or that we should expect? Yeah, definitely. And I, I won't use the word arthritis. I generally tend to not use that word because you can have a scan looking terrible, but Doctors will be amazed that that person's never had pain, you know. Um, so th- there's a catastrophizing that comes in labeling these things. And so I wouldn't say that, you know, age and arthritis and start thinking about those things coming together. What I would be interested in is cyclical patterns of stiffness that aren't going away and, and asking why that is. And it may well be that, you know, you can't try quite as hard as you want to for successive days, but you probably could if you had. A one day on one day off or one day on two days off approach and you did a bit more work on things that you've probably never done but always thought you should <laughs> around mobility strength you know that sort of thing mm. and, and then just go back a little wiser and that's what tends to happen to people who are lifers who refuse to stop they get wise because their body won't let them continue to work like a wolverine their <laughs> genes will let them <laughs> right yeah totally yeah on that point i'm curious like what kind of uh what kind of things do people notice when they start taking all this other stuff seriously? You know, like if you've only been hangboarding and, and climbing for the past 10 years or something or, or longer, 20 years, um, and you're noticing stiffness and achiness, or maybe, maybe you notice stiffness and lack of range of motion, but you don't have any pain, um, you know, prevention or having a longer career is a pretty weak motivator for most people right? Like if they don't have an issue now and they're still able to get away with it and climb the way they want to, um, it's, it's really hard to stay on top of all this, uh, PT sort of stuff. Um, yeah. Does it, will it help people climb better? Will it help people with their finger strength or with their ability to use different grip positions or things like that? Yeah. I mean, playing the long game is definitely the way you want to go. That doesn't necessarily mean it needs to be boring and predictable. It just means that if you're going to do some things that if you want stronger fingers then invest in them in a way that's as low impact as possible and that you can be consistent as possible with, yeah, that's probably a really easy one. If you can't straighten your fingers and you're 30, then that's not right. <laughs> you've probably never stretched your fingers mm-hmm. unless you've got some genetics at play. Um, it's just fundamental things that are a bit boring, but actually are definitely worth investing in and just, yeah, if it matters to you, then pay more attention, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it might be very complicated, but don't pay attention. And it might be quite difficult to unpick in the future. But mm. yeah, to 30, you shouldn't have restrictions in your range of joints. Definitely not. Okay. That's yeah. great. Cool. Anything else on fingers? Um, Not really. I think that was quite a nice little summary about a lot of things I see in clinic. 
Now you could get geeky, but let's not bother with that. There, there's <laughs> definitely, uh, I mean, there's definitely some clear themes that are coming up. Um, you know, you you listed the same handful of exercises for basically everything we talked about. Um, how do you program this stuff in? You know, if you have uh, a client who is interested in just making sure that they have bulletproof fingers and they want to prevent injuries over the long haul, they want to continue mm. their training. Um, mm. Do you do this kind of stuff every day? Do you do it on rest days? Do you do it on climbing days before you train, after you train? What, what's, what are some of the kind of practical guidelines for fitting, fitting this stuff in? Yeah, so I, I normally try and put these things into people's warm-up pre-climb. So I know that they go climbing a lot. I, I don't know what they do when they don't climb. I know work gets in the way. They probably don't sleep that well sometimes. Can't be bothered. Um, they might be stressed. These things are reasons to not do it outside climbing. So anything that you can do, um, a good coach calls it hiding the broccoli. You know, <laughs> kids have got to eat broccoli, but they don't want to. So you got to hide it. And um, yeah, mm-hmm. you got to hide the broccoli sometimes. So trying to program it into your warm-up would be the best possible way of doing it. And then you'll get it done thousands of times and not think about it. So for that to work, they have to be the right exercises, i.e. the climber has to do them and feel better for it. And that's where you don't want to give many. You want a really good diagnosis, one or two specific things, and then just, yeah, like say, hide the broccoli, get let them just uh, tick away with it. That's the right way of doing it. Well, that's another good takeaway actually, is that, you know, we, we listed a bunch of great exercises, but you shouldn't feel as though you have to do all of them and get overwhelmed by that. You should, you know, actually do these tests on yourself, pay attention to your mobility in different areas, and then just focus on the one or two or three things that you need. Yeah, definitely. Because the the danger of overloading someone with exercises, even before, if you don't get those things done, and particularly if they're not programmed into a protected time like climbing, then psychologically, what what happens, it's weird. Those exercises become a negativity rather than something you think I'm going to do, make up and do more of them. You associate them with failure or guilt and you actually distance yourself from them psychologically. So the, the art of exercise prescription is a subtle dark art. And you, and it, <laughs> the, the clearer you are in what's going wrong, the less that has to happen because the fewer exercises they do. So it's a really interesting side of my job that. Mm psychology of it all you know yeah yeah and we will be right back this episode is brought to you by crimped if you are psyched to level up your climbing in 2024 check out the crimped app this is the most useful app i've seen when it comes to self-coached training for rock climbing Crimped has dozens of workouts that focus on all the different facets of climbing performance and training, strength, endurance, power, flexibility, you name it. You can find workouts for whatever you want to train, and they have been carefully crafted by world-class climbers and coaches. I did a really fun collaboration with Crimped last year, and one of their featured playlists is a selection of workouts that I made for those of you who prefer to train on real rock. Emil Abrahamson also has a playlist to help you guys address common skill and strength gaps on the journey from V0 to V15. 
And Ryan Devlin over at the Struggle Podcast, who's a friend of the show, has a playlist for pumpy overhanging sport climbing as he chases his first 513 at the Red River Gorge. So you can find all of that and a lot more in the app. It really is a treasure trove of training information and it will guide you every step of the way. So check out Crimped. You can learn more and download the app by going to crimped.com. That's C-R-I-M-P-D.com to get started and download the Crimped app for free. This episode is brought to you by Tindec. I've talked about this thing a lot on the show because I'm a huge fan. The Tindec Progressor might be the most useful training tool I own. I've had mine for a little over a year now. I use it at the gym. I use it in my van. I use it at the crag. I use this thing all the time and it's super duper handy. What is it? The Tindec Progressor is a digital force gauge that you can sync to your phone with Bluetooth to measure your finger strength. You can use it for all sorts of other exercises too. This thing looks like a little block with a couple holes in it. You can attach it to a tension block. All you need is some type of hangboard, a couple carabiners, a sling, and your Tindec, and you can do legit finger training anywhere. It pairs with your phone and gives you a live readout of how much load you're pulling with your fingers. So you can do max hangs or recruitment pulls or whatever you want to do literally anywhere. I flew my Tindec to Magicwood and Rocklands last summer. It's really small. It weighs almost nothing, so it was no big deal. And I did all of my training with a tension block, a sling, and my Tindec all summer, and I set an all-time finger strength PR a few months into the trip, just from doing a few hard pulls before I went climbing a couple days a week. I've talked about this thing a lot with Tyler Nelson. He's a huge fan of this thing. He's the one who introduced me to it. There's lots of ways you can use it. It's awesome. Go to tindeck.com to check out their products. I have the Progressor 300, but the 200 is more than enough capacity for finger training. And use code NUGGET to save $10 off anything in their shop. That's tindeck.com, T-I-N-D-E-Q.com. And use code NUGGET at checkout to save $10 off your order. Train your fingers anywhere with Tindeck. And now, back to the show. Uh, so I'm feeling conscious of time. Um, do you want to yeah. try to just keep going down the list or... Are there things that stand out to you that feel more important? Um, yes, I think it's good to talk about elbows for sure. So, yeah, happily talk about elbows because you know after that we're going straight to neck, knee, and, and it's slightly less linked to what we've talked about, I suppose. Okay. Does that make sense? Let's do it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Nice one. All right. That's how you do this a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Jumping into elbows. Okay, this is a question from Martin. Um, and I'm curious if you had thoughts. Uh, you've already read these questions. So if you had thoughts and want to take this in a different direction, then uh, I'll let you go for it if you want to tie it into the stuff we've talked about. But Martin wanted to yeah. know, um, Martin says, I picked up tennis elbow. And while I did get good information on possible exercises to treat it, I'm uncertain about what to avoid and how strictly. Part of the problem is I'm not sure what caused it. Frankly, much of the climbing doesn't seem to provoke it, at least not in the moment. Obviously, I'm avoiding things that trigger the pain, but other than that, can I keep going or am I postponing my recovery by continuing to climb? Okay. I mean, the first thing I hear there is that climbing doesn't bother it too much. That's amazing. 
Yeah, I mean, that, that's either a really mild, stubborn tendon problem that isn't going away, or it's not lateral end epicondylosis. I, I guess, should we call it golfer's elbow? Because it's a little less faffy. Uh, this person said tennis elbow, which I always thought was on the other side of the... Ah, tennis elbow. elbow. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. So we'll call it tennis elbow. That's probably easier than um, epicondylosis. But yeah, normally that isn't something you can just climb through without any restrictions. Normally there'll be moves that really annoy outside elbow pain. Um, pinches are notorious for giving them a lot of grief because you're having to compress using your intrinsics of your hand. And your wrist is bending back a lot to stabilize um, that grip. That tends to be really provocative. If you actually think about what gives you, you know, tennis elbow top problems, you, you've got muscles that cross the elbow and cross the wrist and sometimes the fingers. And the job is to open your fingers, bend your wrist back and turn your palm out. And, and, and that's it. Th those are the muscles which come and attach to that footprint. So just knowing that is really important because then you think about what elements of that, those contractions are painful. That's, that's the right way to break down outside elbow pain. And I guess the most obvious thing is to separate out rotation. So turning your palm up like you're undercutting, which is the supinator muscle, um, from you know extension of the wrist, bending it back and opening the fingers. I, I like to do that in clinic. So a, a nice test I use is just the resisted middle finger test. So you start with your elbow at 90 and your hand outstretched. And then you basically put pressure down through the middle finger and you ask that person to resist that contraction. And if it's a really bad um, tennis elbow, it will hurt quite early. If it's not too bad and you get them to straighten their elbow a bit and you might find it develops as they extend their elbow, so straighten it, or it gets worse as they bend their elbow, or both. But in that itself, it gives me a bit of a movement bias so I understand where that pain gets worse. And interestingly, through scanning and things, I find that people who have a footprint problem, so where the tendon joins directly onto the bone, they tend to get problems more into compression, so deep lock-offs, where the tendon wraps around the bone. And if you've got a problem, a bigger problem around the muscle tendon, that tends to struggle to coordinate a contraction across the elbow and the wrist. So that gets worse as you straighten the elbow. But that's not a hard, fast rule. There'll be lots of people listening to that going, well, I see both, and I, and, and I do too. But I look for movement biases, and I'll use that to inform how I rehab that person. Mm -hmm. So normally, if you do that resisted middle finger test, and let's say it hurts when you're halfway through straightening your arm, at that point there, I would look to see what load it takes to cause that pain, and I would make that their little marker. And I would teach them how to use that as an objective marker because you want to find the position where the pain is most obvious because in that position, you'll see the biggest changes. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, you actually want to work on the area where there's the most pain. Yeah, you want to isolate that position as a, a, an objective marker to see whether the stuff you're actually doing is reducing your pain. I see. So you find the provocative position, you get some numbers to it, and then you do everything out of that position to get as much force as possible through that unit. Mm. Essentially be as aggressive as you can in the safe places. And then use the vulnerable places to say, well, did that work or not? Okay. So that's that's normally how I look at simple extension um, pain. 
But then there's the rotational element. So for that, I get people to sit with their elbows at 90. I'll get them to lock their fingers together and essentially try and turn their palms up. This is a weird one, but climbers love breaking apples in half. <laughs> I don't know if, if that's something you or your mates do. I've never but tried it. Yeah. The number of climbers I see breaking apples in half, maybe it's just me <laughs> and my friends. <laughs> but it's that contraction that essentially isolates your supinator. So you do that and try and slowly straighten out. And if that doesn't hurt, then I take the rotational element out and I focus purely on the wrist and finger extension. And then suddenly life's a bit simpler. Mm. Okay. But, you know, but ten tennis elbow is really fiddly. Golfer's elbow is really much easier, in my opinion, because oh, okay. it's a much thicker footprint. You can be way more aggressive, whereas outside elbow pain tends to be more fiddly because the footprint's smaller. Mm. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, though. It sounds like kind of a similar approach. I had really severe elbow tendonitis probably four or five years ago, um, and I was a real idiot. I mean, it was starting to come on, and... I don't know why, but I just thought I could, you know, I, I thought I could get strong enough that I would eventually, I thought I was like in a race against the pain, you know, and I would like come out on top and everything was going to be fine. I was like doing one arm lock off training while this tendonitis was getting worse and worse anyway. But I, I remember stumbling into maybe it was Jared Vagey or someone's advice. And they, um, they kind of showed you how to do three different tests um, to see where your pain was coming from. And I think for, yep. if I remember correctly, for elbows, it was either uh, kind of when you full crimp, that would make the pain show up for some people. And then like a yeah, so um, um, supination, right? Like twisting yep. this way. Um, would yeah. That's what would do it for me. I noticed that really quickly. Yep. So I would do, um, you know, I'd hold like a frying pan and slowly lower it down and then assist it back up um, yep. for that. And then I think the other one, what was it? It was it was like an extension. I would use a TheraBand and do this really weird twisting thing. Oh, yeah. That lit up my pain. So it was just, I was like, oh, okay, the crimps aren't doing it, but the other two are. So I'm only going to focus yeah. on those two exercises. And um, and it resolved actually pretty quickly. Once I took a break from climbing, and, and this is something that I thought of actually reading uh, Martin's question, is that something I remember that was confusing is, you know, I had pretty severe tendonitis or tendinosis, it was like really bothering me. But as soon as I got through my warm up, it would go away and yeah. I would feel fine. And then none of my climbing would aggravate it. So I thought it was, I thought I was okay, but really I would have a hard climbing day and then it would feel like way worse that night and it would be really sore the next day. So um, I was kind of, I was kind of tricking myself and lying to myself saying that it was, you know, climbing wasn't the issue, but really it was entirely the 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 root cause of it i was just being stubborn yeah that's the quagmire that's the sort of hard bit to get into where you probably found you got some progress and then you divorced yourself from the idea that you were injured it almost in denial and went back into climbing that's what a lot of people do so they knuckle down they feel a bit better and then they they, they don't break the climbing down enough just to understand what is painful what isn't and then stick to it um, uh, yeah, you're right. That's, that's where a lot of people come unstuck really. And you just need to lean into that bit and break it down a bit more. But, um, it sounds like you had more of a rotational bias too, uh, than an extension bias. Mm -hmm. And, and one, one really important thing is whether you've got inside or outside elbow, um, tendon problems is make sure that you're thinking about using the, um, elbow muscles as much as you can through range. So, you know, 
make sure you, you work in your biceps as much as you can and work in your triceps as much as you can and really focusing on like end of range um, contractions, uh, base flexion and extension. Because, you know, for you, if you had a problem with the outside elbow and turning your palm up was quite uncomfortable, you might actually be able to do supinated chin-ups, which no climbers do. Um, but that puts your supinator into a closed position. It works your biceps, which is a really strong supinator. So you'd actually work on, you know, really stabilizing that and working through range with an exercise that's going to stabilize that muscle. So, you know, it's, it's looking outside the kind of typical climbing positions at ways you can cross train almost in positions where normally you're palm down. But if you go palm up, you're working all those muscles in inner range. And that's, that's a really good exercise to do. Mm-hmm. Um, again, it's just cross training a bit and knowing why you're doing it. And then you'll just commit to it. <laughs> are, are there any things, any exercises or things that you wish more climbers did to prevent elbow injuries like is or or you know overuse tendon things is there a behavioral shift that you wish people would make any kind of blanket general recommendations yeah yeah i think so i i'd like people to if if you're hangboarding then hangboard with your elbows straight and bent don't don't sort of be married to this idea that they need to be straight or bent you know mix it up Mm. change your elbow position you're not going to climb with your elbows straight. You'll, you'll, you'll move to whatever position you need to. So why are you forcing it to be in one position? Um, that, that, that's a good idea to do. Just mix it up. Rotational strength is really important. You look at arm wrestling, it's, it's all rotation. Mm. You know, you see, you see an elbow fixed at 90 and they're just moving their shoulder, but it's all about how much they rotate that, their opponent's elbow into a vulnerable position. And a lot of good climbers uh, look at those sort of exercises and do that. And I think if that could kind of filter down to the more novice climbers, I think that would probably help stabilize their um, climbing a lot more as well. So just rotational strength and, you know, antagonists, you know, doing press-ups through range. That's a really, really good idea. Give that elbow as little reason to have the little guys isolated by being really strong in your big prime movers. Mm. It's just basic S&C really. Um, and then not being obsessive about what you, which position your elbow's in when you're doing something fit like fingerboarding if you're doing that loads. That's less likely to isolate issues, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's great. Did you have cool. any uh, thoughts you wanted to share on Michael's question? I, I thought this was probably probably the the most difficult question to speak to of everything that I received. Um, basically asking you how you decipher different sources of lateral elbow pain. I don't know how you could do that without actually seeing this client and, and testing, but yeah. Do you have thoughts on that? Do you want me to dive into that question? Um, yeah, definitely. I mean, that's, do you know what? That's actually the simplest of the lot. Okay, great. Okay. Let's go for it. So yeah, Michael wanted to know, how do you decipher different sources of lateral elbow pain? For example, epicondylitis, epicondylitis versus nerve entrapment. And are there any non-surgical interventions for recurring nerve entrapments? Yeah. So um, w- with that one, it was about um, so that uh, so that was the question about just nerve and muscle, right? Not joint. Believe so. Or was that asking about all sorts of outside elbow pain? Could it be beyond the nerve itself, or was it just muscle versus nerve? I I, I don't know. I, I'm not sure. Yeah. So, so um, if you're trying to work out if something's a nerve versus a muscle, 
it can be quite difficult in that you might be getting pain from the nerve that's getting pinched by the muscle. And that nerve will run really close to where the tendon is. The thing that makes it slightly easier is that if it's a simple outside tendon problem, it will be a load-based problem. And you shouldn't reproduce that same area of pain by moving your head. And the nerve that will give you those outside symptoms is your radial nerve. Most climbers are brilliant with their anatomy. They already know that. And so a really easy way to figure that out is doing something called a weightless hand fit, which is something that people probably don't do anymore, but where you're trying to pass the weight or a little tip. And it's just straight elbow, uh, hand by your side, and bend your wrist down like you're on a slope and turn your fingers out. That's really hard to describe you on a podcast. Your <laughs> on your shoulder and then tip your head away. Mm. That will give you outside elbow pain if you've got any you know, neural entrapment. Okay. And that's normally your radial nerve in your supinator. Um, but there was a question around deciphering between um, tendon problems and joint problems. And I think that's a way more um, frequently encountered issue that you need to be aware of. Mm, okay. Because outside elbow joint pain really looks like um, tennis elbow. But it's really easy to decipher because um, it's a simple kind of old school physio approach or you know rehab approach. If you touch your shoulder with your hand and you just try and force that hand further back, that's really switching off the um, connective tissue. You're looking at stuff that doesn't contract. Now, normally, if your palms are up, your forearm bones are in parallel with each other. It's quite a simple mechanical movement for your elbow to hinge palm up. But if you turn your palm down, the bones are crossed, and there's suddenly a lot more pressure on the outside elbow joint, your radiocapitella joint. And if you turn palm away and bring the knuckles towards your shoulder and then push that hand further back, you've got an active problem coming from the joint there. You'll, you'll normally find it out there. Mm. And that's a really easy way to find out whether it's an active contraction problem or it's a non-contractile problem, i.e. a joint. And interestingly, I, I see this most in American climbers who climb cracks, who've been told they've got lateral elbow epicondylosis. Um, when actually they've got a joint problem and it's because they're always, well, they're often turned down in a hand jam thumbs down, and they're yeah. locking up that outside elbow. And there's some really gory, exactly. There's some really gory, um, research that's done some weird testing on how to figure out those pressures, but they've found that when your palms down, there's more pressure there. And so cracks are really bad for outside elbow joint problems. And that's how you'd figure out whether it's a tendon problem or a joint problem. And that might actually really help some people listening to this. If they just do that simple test, it might change the direction they're going in in terms of their rehab. What's the next step for someone if they're a crack climber and they realize, you know, if someone just had a light bulb moment, like, oh, I might actually have a joint problem instead of yes. tennis elbow. What do they do next? Go, but, go see somebody? So I've done or? Some remote work. Yeah, I've done some remote work with a few people. And um, you're usually looking at, well, how much is that restriction happening when your palms away from you you can measure that easily looking at back of your wrist to shoulder and then turning your hand towards you and seeing if that's a lot better and that's a really good measurement to see whether or not that joint problem is getting worse if those values change then it's about yeah thinking about mechanics so if your palms up supinated you can normally do things like chin-ups elbow curls bicep curls um, even pickups and things where we'd normally turn our arm down with thumb in, we just turn it to perhaps pointing thumb forwards. 
And you're just taking that joint out of that compressed position and trying to give it some breathing space for some time. It's normally good to see a professional just to clarify whether or not you're, you're doing is right. But unfortunately, there are people who've seen a lot of therapists and not, and not had that figured out for them. So just that simple test is worth trying, if you, particularly if you are a crack climber without said elbow pain. Mm. It's very specific. <laughs> Well, Paul, we have already reached our uh, ninety-minute mark. Man, that flew by. I, uh, you're gonna have to come on again. I'm thinking maybe we uh, we focus this time on fingers, elbows, and kind of leave it there, and uh, yes. and then have you back on for knees, neck, and back. How does that sound to you? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and if anyone's got any other questions, then feel free to get in touch. But there's this kind of parallels and, and good learning points in all this stuff, but ultimately good rehab comes down to really specific diagnosis and so yeah it's always good to see someone to get your problem specifically diagnosed so you can really get to the heart of the problem fast mm-hmm. um but hopefully there's been some useful things here in terms of like teaching people some simple tests understanding their anatomy a little better and realizing that there's ways to keep climbing if you just really understand the problem and um are patient and consistent you know mm-hmm. yeah that's great Let's uh, let's wrap up with this one general injury prevention question from Noah. What is your top advice to not get injured? Yeah, um, <laughs> it's a big que- big question. Advice to, to not get injured. Oh, do you know what? A question that big, I would say probably ignore half the stuff on on Instagram about get trying to be strong, and 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 go don't fall for the fallacy of strength. Hmm. Um, you know, we're all a little drunk on, on the idea of being strong, but the people with the strongest fingers aren't the best climbers. And so you often see people with it doing amazing feats of strength, but you know, climbing quite a few grades down from people who aren't as strong and they're a bit like a car doing a wheel spin in a car park, you know, you just, (laughs) the best climbers know how to move. Hmm. And I think philosophies like Adam Andres, you know, he, he's got a great, attitude to climbing and it's very very infectious when you hear him talking about stuff like this he's essentially if he's having an easy session or a really hard session he's engaged to the point where he's thinking about how to do each movement better and so it really doesn't matter how hard he's climbing because he's always learning and so if he's having an easy rest day he's done a, does a climb he thinks well how could i have done that better how did my body feel he's never just yarding along and so i think your brain's the biggest thing you can really focus on don't get swept up in being strong get swept up in climbing better and enjoying every single time you climb if you can do that you'll be a good climber you might not be the strongest but you don't need to be Mm. um i think i'd love to see that more on social media but it's hard to sell that Mm. so you know (laughs) you might not see it so much it's not (laughs) it's not as sexy as a one-arm four mil hang you know <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no, I I love that. That's such a good answer, and uh, it, it gets me actually really fired up because I've noticed myself kind of over the course of four years of doing the podcast and having all these conversations, and also you know working on my own climbing the whole time as well. I've kind of seen myself naturally drift in that direction, and it's um, it's yielding better results. But it's also I'm just enjoying my climbing maybe more than I ever have. I've, I've talked about this a little bit already uh, in the last couple episodes, but I'm here in Waco Tanks and 
you know, I've been here for over a month and I'm having my favorite season I've ever had. And I literally haven't sent anything. I've only been trying hard projects and really focusing on just learning every session and, and learning yeah. how to, you know, train air quotes, really just learn better on my projects. And, um, and I, I've seen progress in every, almost every single session of the entire trip so far, because when you really zoom in and pay attention to the details like that, there's just, there's just always, um, there's always more things to learn. There's always ways to, you know, feel a little bit better on a hold or grab it a little bit differently or do a movement slightly yeah. more efficiently or whatever it is. And yeah, yeah. I'm really enjoying it. And, you, and that's great. And, and I bet you, when you come off a problem, if you're in that frame of mind, you're less emotional because you're being objective and you actually know what's going right and what's going wrong. But if your preset is, I must try harder and that's why I didn't do it. then when you come off it, you're going to be emotional and pent up and frustrated because you don't actually know why you're not doing it. And it seems so obvious, but so many people fall into that trap, you know? And then so going back to like Andre's approach of just climbing better every move, every session and enjoying the process of figuring out. To me, that's a way happier way of climbing. Mm. So I'd say that the trick is to, to do that. It sounds like <laughs> you're doing it pretty well. So yeah, good effort. Uh, well, that's a great note to, to end on, Paul. I really appreciate you. Um, let people know where they can find you. I will link to you on Instagram. Um, but yeah, tell people where else they can find you. Are you available for consultations or to work with people? Or do you have your hands full with, uh, with the GB team? What, is, what does that look like for you? Yeah, so I'm on Instagram as the climbing physio. Um, I know there are other climbing physios out there, but no one had taken that one. So I thought I might as well. I don't, I don't think I'm the climbing physio, just to put it out. We'll still, we'll still market so, you that way. It's good, it's good branding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah so I, I did quite a lot of remote work, um, a lot of work with people in America, actually. But yeah, as it gets closer to the games, I'll get busy with that. And it'll be good. I'm looking forward to it. But yeah. It's nice to do these these chats and talk about these things. And it's a great sport, you know, it's a great lifestyle we've got. And it's just really important that we we just enjoy it and remember that it's way more complicated than some binary exercises. And that, you know, when your emotions are tied into it as well, it's more important than ever to try and be objective and not just like run yourself into the ground trying to figure out a problem like an injury or even just fine because your mental health relies on it. There's always sometimes it can be a crutch that isn't so healthy. So climbing's brilliant, but you've got to control it in lots of ways. And mm. it'll be a great thing for life, I think. But sometimes that works quite hard, I think. Mm. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Well, thank you again. I, I, yeah, I really enjoyed this. Thanks for all the questions from all of you patrons. Those were awesome. And uh, I think it led to uh, a really helpful and really valuable and really fun conversation. So appreciate you. Patrons, stick around. We're going to dive into a little bit more of Paul's climbing. We're going to keep it short, I think. Let this guy go to bed soon. It's getting late over there. But yeah. uh, <laughs> he's a badass. He's climbed V13. And I just watched your short film this morning, actually. Um, I'm really excited to talk about it. So so patrons stick around. We're going to dive into that. I think it's probably going to um, tie into some of the things that, that Paul just shared, hearing what he learned from this, uh, this hard climbing project. But anyway, yeah, stick around. The rest of you, hope you learned something. Um, I'll try to have Paul back on to dive into other common climber injuries and body parts, knees, back, neck, maybe shoulders. Um, so we'll keep you posted about that. But in the meantime, thanks for listening. 
and we'll see you next time. Hey friends, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Paul. I hope you found it useful. If you want to get to know the man behind the climbing physio, we did talk for another 10 minutes and we talked more about his climbing and his climbing journey and the biggest lessons that he learned from his hardest climb. We talked about him doing the first ascent of a V13 called You Can Go Now. He shared the story behind the name and learning why he climbs. And it was really beautiful. I really enjoyed that short chat with Paul. So if you want to listen to that, that is available right now as this week's extra. It is available for patrons who support the show for $5 per month or more. And right now there's a seven day free trial. So you can go over to patreon.com slash the nugget climbing. There's a link right there in your podcast app. If you scroll down, that will take you right over there. You can sign up for free. It just takes a few minutes to sign up. You can cancel at any time, no questions asked, and you'll get access to all of the bonus content that I put out for the nugget. I'm putting out extras for almost all of my episodes these days. So if you can't get enough of the show and you want more time with your favorite guests, be sure to go check that out. Sometimes it's really short. Sometimes it's 10 minutes. Sometimes it's an hour. It just totally depends on the guest and how much we have to talk about. So be sure to check that out. I would love to have your support. It means the world to me. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you have an amazing week. Best of luck with your rehab if you're injured. I hope you're back to climbing soon. Best of luck with your training and climbing. And we will see you next time. 